Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. Welcome back to Parsha Perspectives for today. We have the privilege this week of reading and learning Parsha Shlach, the great story, the terrible story, the great story of the uh, Jewish people trying to investigate the land of Israel, ultimately our Aliyah, our collective move there, and many other sections as well, Makoshish Eitzim, Chala, and much more. Our Parsha series is generously sponsored by Becky and Avi Katz and family in memory of David Grossman. Our learning is Le'ilu Nishmas David Menachem Manash. We are so grateful to the Grossmans for their generosity, for the Katzes for their generosity. Today's year is also sponsored in memory of Meshulam ben David Shendabaz David Avner ben Avram Akoin. May the Neshamas have an Aliyah. Thank you so much for the generosity and uh, all that sponsorship. Page 798 in the Art Scroll, Stone Chumash. Pasha Shlach. By the Bear Shama Moshe Le Mor Shlach Lecha Anashim, via Surus Eretz Kenan. Hashem spoke to Moshe and he said, Send, identify and find spies who will investigate the land, who will go see the land, one from each of the tribes, send one leader from among them. And in this Pasuk itself already is revealed what went wrong. Everything that happened that was wrong. What does the Pasuk tell us? What's the next word? Anashim. So the Kliyakar says, Lekach pired anashim, lefish omru chazal hanashim ayusonim es haaretz, v'omru nisna rosh v'anashiva mitzrayma, v'anashim ayimachavavos haaretz. The men were reluctant, the men were hesitant, the men did not want to enter the land. They had powerful positions in the Midbar. They were living this incredibly supported kola lifestyle in the Midbar. All they did is sit and learn. Everything was prepared and taken care of for them. The man fell from Shemayim, and the water came from the Be'er, and safety and security, the army, the police force was provided by the Anani Akavod. Everything was taken care of. All they had to do was sit and learn. A very noble and ambitious, beautiful lifestyle. However, entering the land would require settling the land, would require farming the land, would require protecting the land, governing the land. They didn't want to go. And who were the ones who were Mechavavos who loved and who had an affection for the land of Israel? The Nashim, the women. So where did it all go wrong, says the Kliyakar? Shlach lecha anashim. Had women been sent, we never would have wandered 40 more years. We would have gone right in. Beis HaMikdash would have been built. The story would have a very happy ending right from the start. But because men were sent, they messed everything us. V'yakein amar kadosh baruch hu. Hashem says would be much better off sending women. You, Moshe, you want men to go? You think that's the way to go? No problem. I know it's a recipe for disaster. I know we're much better off if women go. You want men? Go for it. So the Kliyakar says that's where it all went wrong is by the third word, Shlach Lecha Anashim. Had it been women spies, we would have been a much better, different, a much different conclusion, a much better circumstance. This is where it all, this is what all, what all went wrong. The Sefer Shara Chatzar says the women that reason love Eretz Yisrael, Eretz Yisrael is called Isha Yiras Hashem. Eretz Yisrael, a nickname for Eretz Yisrael is Isha Yiras Hashem. How many spies went? Well, the Pasuk, it says, tells us. 
One spy per tribe. The Nasi, the prince, the leader, the head. That's what we all know. That's what we were all grew up with. That's how we were all raised. But Otsar plus HaTorah, our wonderful Nasefer we've been exploring this year, quotes the Yerushalmi. The Yerushalmi in Masechah Sota says, Ish echad l'shevet, adait Rabbi Kiva, du amr l'shonas rebuyenhein. It says, Ish echad, Ish echad, Ish echad, Ish echad, means two. Esrim v'arbahayu. Really, there were two men from each tribe. There were 24 spies. And how they were divided in terms of carrying these enormously large, overgrown fruit. Then you have to fit that in. So Rabbi Kiva is of the opinion that there were not 12 spies. There's a Medrash that tells us, in fact, there were 24 spies, 12 from each tribe. Rabbi Shmuel is the source that we have for the fact that we're 12. So it comes out that if in fact there were 24, that has a very important consequence or ramification. We know in order to recite holy texts, holy parts of our liturgy, our davening, you need a minion. require a require a minion. How many is in a minion? 10. How do you know it's 10? From our Pasha, because the Torah says, he bought the separate mitocha eda harahazos from this congregation, this eda. There were 12 spies minus two. Kalev and Yoshua were good. That leaves how many? 10. That's how we know a minion. But if it turns out that there weren't 12 spies, there were 24 spies, subtract two. Maybe in order to say Dvarm Shivakdusha, maybe a minion is not 10. Maybe a minion is how many? 22, I go to Rav Fig Berlin in his Sefer Yeseder Mishnah, writes Ha'aron Ifla, according to Rabbi Akiva, that there were 24 spies. So, we learn from Toch Toch Nikdashti Besoch Pene Israel, Hibalum Mistoch Ha'ida, Eida Eida Admasa Eida Harazos, 10. But according to Rabbi Akiva, there are 24 minus 2, you would have, you would need 22 in order to have a minion. We don't pass in this way, we don't follow that. But it comes out very interesting that there is an opinion that maybe a minion is not 10, that maybe a minion is no less than 20, no less than 22. Okay, let's keep going. So these spies are identified, they're targeted. It was a mistake that it was men chosen, not women. And this interpretation, the Kliakar was not being apologetic and responding to feminists who were attacking him. It's because the Torah always puts women on a pedestal and admires women for their virtue and nobility and often their higher spirituality. And that's what the Kliyaka already mentioned a couple hundred years ago, Bechalanu Anashim, where we went wrong from the, to begin with, from the very start, was choosing men, not women. Perakid Gimel Pasuk Tes Vav. Pasuk Tes Zayin. Pasuk says, Eilish Mosa Anashim HaShalach Moshe Lasur These are the name of the men that Moshe sent to investigate the land, Vayikra Moshe Hoshea bin Nun Yehoshua. And Moshe changes Hoshea's name to Yehoshua. Sounds like his name was Hoshea, and it became Yehoshua. Why did it become Yehoshua now? Why now? Rashi says, Nispalal alav ya Yehoshiacham He added God to, Moshe, to Yehoshua's name, with a prayer, may Hashem spare you, fortify you, give you the courage and the conviction to overcome 
the pressure from your fellow spies. May you stand up for what's right. May you have the courage to speak the truth. So Moshe changes Hosea's name to Yoshua. The question is, when did this happen? When was the name change? When was the successful name change? So the Chizkuni, the Chizkuni on our parasha tells us that in fact, it was not right now. Though the Pasuk strongly implies Hosea's name change took place now, it took place earlier. When did it take place earlier? Writes the Chizkuni, Vayikra Moshe L'Hosheh ben Yoshua, Lo shekaru ata Yoshua, Lakacha perishu, Shekaru Moshe Yoshua kfar, Mishanasa Misharso. When Yoshua became his assistant, when Yoshua became his right-hand man, protege, is the word I was looking for. When Yoshua became his protege, that's when the name changed from Hosea to Yehoshua. Because that is in fact the custom. When you get a position of distinction, you have a title change, maybe a name change. It was out of chiba, it was out of love. It was out of a prayer that Moshe had then. You're playing this significant role for me and for the people. You're no longer Hosea, you're now Yehoshua. And we find this precedent. Avram was Avram. He became Avraham. Sarah was Sarai. She became Sarah. Yaakov was Yaakov. He became Yisrael. It wasn't when he originally was recruited to become his protege, nor was it when he was sent to be one of the spies. According to this third interpretation, when was it? The name change? Harsinai. He said, if you're going to be the Skanrish Kolo, then you can't be Hosea. You got to be Yehoshua. You're not Jared, you're Yitzchak. You're not Jake, you're Yaakov. If you're going to take over the yeshiva, if you're going to be my assistant, you got to go by a different name. You're not Hosea, you're now Yehoshua. So according to the Chizkuni, Moshe already called him this, not right now when he's sent to be a spy. So Lechora says the Utzer Plos HaTorah, Nir Lomar, Shekvar Koro came Yosem Eretz Mitzrayim. When did Moshe, when did Hosea, now known as Yehoshua, first begin to be the assistant to Moshe? Where and when? Already in Mitzrayim. Already when we were still in slavery. As the Medrash tells us, the Korban Pesach, Moshe, Moel, Ba'aram Poreav, Yeshua, Mashke. So we already have Yeshua serving as the assistant already in Mitzrayim, which would mean the name change not only didn't happen now, it happened already as far back as when they were living in Mitzrayim. We have a fourth opinion, and that is the Chsam Sofer. Says, The name he was given at his bris was Hosea, but his father already gave him the nickname or called him this other name, Yehoshua, already going all the way back to his bris, to his childhood. So, four opinions. What's interesting is none of them are now. None of them are now what we always were taught, what we thought we already knew, which was when he became the spy in the effort to fortify, to give him the courage, to give him the conviction, he changed his name. Kalev went to Maras we'll talk about in a moment, and Hosea became Yoshua. According to the so far, it goes all the way back to his childhood. According to the Cheskuni, it happened in Mitzrayim, when he became the number two to Moshe. According to another opinion, it happened at Harsinai. And according to what seems to be our Pasuk, 
seems to be Rashi. It happened now when he was sent out on this mission that Moshe gave him this extra courage by changing his name from Hoshea to Yehoshua. The beauty of the Otzer Plus Torah. He digs up opinions, changes what we thought we always knew. You learn in the Parsha, maybe the 50th, 60th, 70th, 80th year in a row, and you always find something new. You always find a new interpretation, something we thought we know we didn't know. So that's Yehoshua. What about Kalev? Turn the page, page 800. They came up, they ascended in the south. They came to Hebron. Hebron had these giants living there, it had been built seven years before Tsoan in Egypt. They arrived in the valley of Eshkol and they cut from there a vine, a cluster of grapes, and pomegranates, and figs. Why were they coming up in the south? Why were they coming up in the south? So, yet again, Rashi tells us what are they doing from the south? Zogd Rashi. Kalev, they didn't all go to this, come up from the south. Who made a pit stop? Who detoured to Hebron? Just Kalev. He went to go daven. Kivrei Avos. He went to go stop at the graveside of his forefathers. He wouldn't be swayed. He wouldn't be persuaded. He wouldn't give in to the peer pressure to conspire with the other spies to report negatively on the land of Israel. Now, there's a question, we've mentioned this in the past, the Aleshur of Obel wonders, if Kalev already anticipates that his peers, his colleagues are gonna be up to no good, and he knows he does not want to join with them, why does he have to go to Maras and You know where they're gonna go bad, you know you don't wanna join them, so don't join them. Shine, good to go. What do you have to go on a detour? What do you have to hijack the bus and go to Hebron? Bulletproof bus nonetheless. Just, you know their plan, their nefarious plans, and have the courage not to give in to them. So Revolba says, sometimes you can anticipate something's gonna be difficult to do, and you could know the right thing to do, and you still need a little extra tefillah that you do the right thing in the end. Even when you know the right thing to do, and even you know there'll be influences trying to get you to not do the right thing, it's not enough to identify those negative influences. It's not enough to identify and know the right thing to do. Sometimes you need a little extra tefillah, a little extra help to do the right thing in that moment. Even when you know the right thing to do, that's the power of peer pressure. It's the power of the Yitzhahara. Even when you know it's wrong, to not give in to what's wrong, that is what Revolbe explains and answers. Back to the Yotzeplosa Torah. In all of the generations, people went to Mar Samachpela to Davin. It is a place that we go to Davin. And among the first to go was Kalev. The Chazal tells Masech Sota. They came up from the south and went to Hebron. He separated from the spies. And he went to Davin. And he said to his mothers and fathers, he said to the matriarchs and patriarchs, to the Avos and Imos, no, Davin for me. Davin for me that I do the right thing. Who else do we know stopped at Marasamachpela? Yirmiyo Anavi. 
Chazal tells us in the Medrash Eicha that in that hour that our enemies came into the Heichal and burned it, Kadosh Baruch said to Yirmiyah, Lech Yaakov, Moshe Mikivreim, Sheim Yodim Levakos. Go call. Go summon Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and Moshe. They know how to cry. And Yirmiyah went immediately to Maras Hamachpelah. He made his way. But the first to go, even before Yirmiyah Wanavi, and even before Kalev Ben Yefuna, was Avram Avinu. As the Zohar HaKadosh tells us, not only did Avram purchase Maras Hamachpelah, our original tie to our homeland, but he went to Davin there each and every day. That field was filled with the highest smells, with the, with the wonderful fragrance of Gan Eden. And Avram saw a light that emanated from that cave. Even before he purchased it, even before he designated it as the eternal resting place of Sarah and ultimately his own, he was drawn there by the light and by the fragrance of Gan Eden. And he was drawn to Davin to connect there spiritually. And that's what planted within him this yearning, this longing. He was pulled to purchase it as the resting place of Sarah. And from the Zohar, it sounds like, it's plausible that not only Avram, but following in his footsteps, Yitzchak and Yaakov and the 12 tribes all davened. And that's where Kalev got that Mesora. Where did Kalev get this minag? Where did he get this idea that you go to Kivri Avos? Where did he get this idea that you go and you stop and you daven at the graves of your forefathers? He got it, Kalev, because the heads of the 12 tribes, who got it from Yaakov, who got it from Yitzchak, who got it from Avram. Because Avram perceived there was something special there, and that is a place that we go to connect. The Rambam writes in a letter, The Rambam talks about the merit he had to go to Mara Samach I left Yerushalayim to Chevron in order to go kiss the graves of my forefathers in the cave. And says the Rambam that day, I stood in the cave, and I davened. I praised and I thanked Hashem for all the good. And I took an oath, a vow, that these days that I married to go to Mars would be designated as festive days, as holidays. For me, writes the Rambam. The Ramban also writes in a letter that he sent to Yerushalayim to his son, Rab Nachman, that he merited to go to Hebron, Ir Kivres Avosenu, Lishtatech Kinegdam Bemarasamach Pela, the Gamlachtsav Sham Keverla Atzmo, that he too was able to go to Marasamach Pela and try to designate a grave there as well. Now Ramban writes in his parish on the Torah as well, Shalachin Nichtab Batoras Parshas Kinias Marasamach Pela. Why does the Torah take up so much real estate to talk about this real estate? To talk about Avram's purchase of Hebron. He overpaid. He overpaid. Because the Torah wants to tell us exactly where the Mara is. We can't neglect the burial place of our forefathers. We don't move on. We don't ignore. We don't neglect. We maintain. We preserve. We protect. We know where it is. And we go back and we visit. Next week I have to go to New York for another simcha for a wedding. I'm flying into Newark and I left myself a little time. I'm going to go visit my grandparents. 
I'm going to go say hello to my grandparents who are buried near Newark, Elizabeth, New Jersey. We know where they're buried, and we go and we visit. It's a big effort. We're going to have them behind the bima. But in Europe, the Jewish cemeteries, some of which are being destroyed, neglected, intentionally with malice, and others without malice, but there's a big effort to try to restore and protect and preserve these tombstones and these cemeteries and the places where our forefathers are, where they're buried. Remember my wife's grandfather, her opa, Arnold Goldsmith, Allah Shalom. He would go back to Germany to visit. He would say, Kivrei Avos. He had no interest in going back to Germany, despite his feelings of fondness for Fulda and his childhood, but he had no positive feeling of going back to Germany. He went back for one reason, Kivrei Avos, the value of Kivrei Avos. It is a Jewish concept. So the question is, why and what? What are we doing there? Are we davening to them? Do we think that they're in a position of influence and power to change our destiny? Why do we go back? Why do we go back to these, to these places? And here again, the Torah is giving us this precedent, Rashi, that, that Kalev went to Hebron, Davke to Davin. Person has a trying circumstance, you go back to Kivri Avos. You know, last time I went to my grandparents' grave, you know what I found there on top of the tombstone? A pile of invitations that my cousins had gone because there's a minhag that you go and you invite those who are no longer here to your simchas. An invitation to a wedding, invitation to a bar mitzvah. Zohar HaKadosh tells us, this is not a made-up rabbi talking point for under the chuppah. You know, talking point uh, 122. Even those who are not here physically are still here under the chuppah. It's not just some rabbinic talking point they teach you in smicha. It's based on a Zohar HaKadosh. I can give you the makor if you want it. That our loved ones, even those who are no longer physically here, they come back down to attend the simchas of their children, of their progeny, of their grandchildren, to reap the reward, to enjoy the nachas, to see the return on the investments that they left. There is a tradition, a truth that we have that they come back, and therefore there's a very beautiful custom. It's a very comforting custom for those who will experience their simcha as bittersweet because a loved one will not be there when you go and physically place an invitation. I don't know what you do today with the invite, the evite. What's the email address of those who are no longer here? <laughs> at cemetery.com. I, I don't know. At ganeden.org. I don't, I don't know exactly how you address it. The evite. I don't know how you do that today. I guess you could always print it out and bring the printout of the evite and put it on top of the... Uh, it's still worth doing the evite, not printing. It's still worth going to an evite. But print it out and you put it... And it's very comforting. That bittersweet simcha, when you can feel I'm putting something physical on this tombstone because they will be there. Not in theory, not because we put a talus as the chuppah, not because we're wearing their kittel only, but because our tradition is that they come, that they come back. So we visit. Kivri of us are important. We go back and we visit. And what are we doing there? Are we davening to people there? Of course not. The Maharil writes in Minhagim Hilchos Tainis, because one of the times that we go to a cemetery specifically is on a fast day. So in Hilchos Tainis he writes, Os Yirches, don't put your hope and faith in those who are buried there. You're talking not to the deceased, you're talking to Hashem. But the deceased now have more access to Hashem, a closer connection to Hashem. They are living more adjacent to Hashem. So you're asking them to represent, to advocate, to be ambassadors, to be a melech yosher. Say, I'm down here 
in the physical world, in the world of temptation, the world of desire, the world of mistakes, the world of failures. So I only have limited way of asking Hashem, but you are living in the Yolama MS. You're in the world of truth. You're in the Yeshiva Shamayla. You are living in this place of God's countenance, undeniable. Your soul is reconnected and restored and returned to its source. So since you now are in with the judge, I know that he's the judge, not you. We're not asking our avos and imaos to determine our fate. That is Hashem and Hashem alone. And we need to know this ma'aril. When you go to the Old of the Rebbe, and when you go to Meiron, and when you go to Cemetery in Warsaw, and when you go to wherever you go in Davin, Kivrei Avos, you're not davening to the people who are buried there. We don't believe in that. That's not our religion. Chalila. You're davening to Hashem, but we are appealing to the one who's buried there, who's now in an Olama MS, who's now clean and pure of whatever mistakes, that because they're in a better position, please advocate, please be my ambassador. This is quoted by the Ber Hetev as well as Mario. The Minchas loser wonders of the Mario. We follow him that Khalid Ben Yefuna went. And what does he do? It says that he's davening to them. So maybe that's a question on the Mario. So the Minchas loser the Munkacher explains the Mario. You're saying, please help my davening be on steroids. Help my davening go even higher. Help my davening be even louder, be even more readily and easily heard. So that's why we go. Lastly, who's buried in Maras HaMachpelah? So the Gemara Avon says, my Machpela. what does Machpela Kefel double suggest? Shekfula bezugos. There's two pairs, doubles and pairs. So who's there? Mamre Kiryas Arba. Kiryat Arba Zugos. It is the Kirya, it is the area of the four pairs. Who are the four pairs? Adam and Chava, Avram and Sarah, Yitzchak and Rivka, Yaakov and Leah. Is that it? Anyone else buried in Marasa Machpela? So the Gemara and Sota, Daf Yud Gimel, tells us that Esav, his eyes, his eyes were plucked out of his head and rolled into Maras Machpelah. Yaakov Shimoni says, the ears of Esav made it in and the Medrash sounds like his whole head. He was decapitated. So some gruesome part of Esav is also in the Ma'ara. The Yaakov Shimoni says, we say in the end of his Zabracha, to his nation he should be brought. Who's this talking about? Yehuda. The Yalkut Shimoni says, Yehuda made his way in. Yehuda snuck into. The Yalkut Ruveni, another Medrash in Zosa Bracha, says in the name of the Sefer Hatmuna, you know who else is buried there? Moshe and Sipora. We don't know where Moshe is buried because none of us were there. That was the day the Hever had off because Hashem himself did the Tahara and buried Moshe. That's why Zion Adar is the Chevra Kadisha dinner, because the Chevra had off that day. None of us were present. So, but Moshe, after he was first buried in Arvas Moab, then was reinterred in Mara Samachpela, says the Medrash Yalkut Ru'uvenu. Moshe, and he was reunited with Sipora. Others say, you know who was buried there? The Ramban. Because in this letter of the Ramban, he says, I visited Mara Samachpela and I got a grave right there. So there is a tradition that maybe even the Ramban is buried there in the Ma'ara. Again, Otsar Plus HaTorah, that 
upends and undoes everything we thought we knew about everything. But does it by bringing sources at least, so it makes it fun. So who's buried in Marasamach Pela? Is it the four pairs that we all know? Or maybe some extras made their way in. Esav, Moshe and Sipora, Yehuda, maybe even the Ramban himself. Perak Yud Gimel Pasuk Chaf Zayin. Moving along. Spies come back. They return from investigating the land and they say, we come from the land that we were sent. It indeed is a land flowing with milk and honey. And this, oh, this is its fruit. Succulent, delicious. Check out this amazing, amazing fruit. By the way, this amazing fruit. We saw it identified which fruit was included. Which fruit was included we saw identified. Anavim, rimonim, te'enim. Grapes, pomegranates, and, and figs. So, Rav Menachem Zemba, the great Rav Menachem Zemba, the Warsaw Ghetto, he writes in the Sefer Chidusha Agon Rav Menachem Zemba, this is also quoted by the Otsopolos HaTorah, Isa B'Shem Ari, mitzvah's bikurim, hitikun l'chetamaraglam. The mitzvah of bikurim, when we come into the land, we take our first fruit, you bring it to Yerushalayim, you make a declaration in front of the Kohen. First fruit, the mitzvah of the first fruit was the antidote, the repair to the mistake of the Chetem Maraglam. Because the Maraglam, the Maraglam spoke negatively about the land. And the mitzvah of Bikurim was given as the antidote because of the love and affection for the land. And how do you know this? Says Ramanacham Zemba, listen to this. There's a remez, there's a hint. The Mishnah in Bikurim, Perek Gimel, Mishnah Aleph, the Mishnah gives an example. Yorid Adam Besoch Sadeyu. How do you fulfill the mitzvah Bikurim? A person goes down into their field. Viroa Te'ina Shebikra. And you see a fig that ripened. Eshkol Shebikir. You see a cluster of grapes that ripened. Rimon Shebikir. A pomegranate that ripened. Koshro Begemi Vomer Elu Bikurim. You tie a rubber band around it and you designate it. These are Bikurim. Why did the Mishnah give these three examples? There are seven fruits of the land of Israel that Bikurim applies to. Why did the Mishnah give these three examples, Davka? You see a grape, you see a fig, you see a pomegranate. He named Muskaran Khan Shlosha Minimum, Muskaran Gam Itzamaraglim, Haremez La Kesher Benehim. Because there is an illusion within the Mishnah itself, Chazal, when it gave three examples of first fruit, specifically chose from among more they could have three examples of first fruit that exactly were the fruit that the Maraglim brought back. Why? Because Bikurim is the antidote. Bikurim is the tikkun of the chait ha-maraglim. Good. So these maraglim come back and they say, ooh, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's beautiful. And this is its delicious fruit. Listen to Rabbi Nachman. This is not Rabbi Nachman directly. It's another beautiful sefer we've been learning from called Shulchan HaShabbos, Im Rabbi Nachman. It takes the teachings of Rabbi Nachman and applies it to the parasha. When the Maraglam returned from investigating the land, from investigating the land, at first they came back and they praised the land. We just read these words. They said, you can imagine the assembly, the shul was packed. Everybody was there. The Maraglam take the stage. New? What'd you see? What'd you find? What's gonna be? How's it gonna go? They grab the mic. 
Trucking one, two. The first thing they say is, um, the land, wah, it's flowing with milk and honey. Check out these fruit. Who hasn't had a breakfast in Israel? Yerushalayim It's the best part of staying in a hotel. That breakfast, the fruit, the vegetables in Israel, so fresh, so delicious, uah. At first, they began with praise. Look at the size of these fruit. Look how succulent, look how delicious, look how ripe. Their ultimate game, their ultimate goal, their ultimate plan was to make the people fear entering the land. But they couldn't hide. They couldn't resist the fact that we're talking about a very special or very singular land. Rabbi Nason writes, Likute alachos brachos, birchas areach, hezayin. Rabbi Nason, the Talmud of Rav Nachman, relaying his Rebbe's teachings, writes, Ikar makom ha'aras haratzon hu be'eretz Yisrael. The main place in the world where the power of the will is the land of Israel. Will. Will meaning our desire, our yearning, our longing, our will. The main place where we, one can see the light and the energy and the power and the effectiveness of simply willing something is the land of Israel. Azai Zakt Rabbi Nassan. This is what Rabbi Nassan had from his Rebbe Rabbi Nachman a few hundred years ago. I found that fascinating because it's a famous quote from Herzl, which is, anyone know it? If you will it, it is no dream. I can't tell how many people have it as their email signature. If you will it, it is no dream. Herzl's quote. I found that fascinating because long before Rabbi Nachman taught, the makom ha'aras haratzon is Eretz Yisrael. The place where if you will it, it is no dream, is the land of Israel. Eretz Yisrael nikres Eretz Tzvi. It's called the land of Tzvi. Utzvi uratzon ba'aramis. In Aramaic, Tzvi is to will. How do you know that? If you ever listen in the reading of Aksuba under the chuppah, maybe I listen more attentively because I have the privilege sometimes of getting to even read. Vitzavi hachasan. It means that the chasan wills, he makes this commitment, that commitment, he will honor this promise, this pledge. Vitzavi. Vitzavi in Aramaic, ba'aramis, is ratzon. He wills. Shehi makom shamimenu novem yishtokakus ratzon Israel alavim shemayim. Where is the place where we spiritually are awakened and aroused? Where the will in us is directed to Avinah Shabbat It's Israel. You land in Israel in the, the air. All of a sudden you feel in touch and connected with your neshama. You yearn for something bigger and more. If you're connected to the holiness and sanctity of the land of Israel, something in you is awake just when you come there. Especially one who lives there. In the latest edition of Jewish Action, on the 75th anniversary of the State of Israel, it has entries about different Gedolei Yisrael and their description, their connection to 1948, the State of Israel, and to Israel in general. So Rabbi Moshe Lichtenstein talks about his father, Rav Aaron Zatzal's connection to the language of Israel, and Rav Aaron's first trip to Israel when he returned his Rebbe, the Pachet Yitzchak, Rav Yitzchak Kutner Zatzal, asked him, "New, tell me about it. What'd you find? What'd you see?" And Rav Lichtenstein gave back and gave a report, not like the Meraglim, like the Meraglim of Sefer Yeshua, gave a report, positive. This yeshivas and this learning, and this was the Kotel, and this is what I saw, and this is who I met, this is what I experienced. 
And Rafutner, when he was all finished, said, you left out the most important part. And he said, what's that? I'm only paraphrasing. It's worth reading it inside. I think we have free copies in the lobby. So you left out the most important part. What's that? He said, did you feel the Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael? Forget who, what, where, when. The air, the land. Did it radiate holiness and sanctity? Did you feel? Were you in touch? Did you connect with its Kedusha? And he records that that was for the rest of his life. Rav Aaron his mantra was as significant and as miraculous as the state, the core of Eretz Yisrael is its Kedusha, its sanctity, its singularness, its uniqueness, its singularity. And that's what he's teaching here, that when you come into the land of Israel, it's a place that one is awakened in the Ratzon. And So this Sefer Shulchan HaShavah says, in our generation, we've married, you could live in Israel. You could move to Israel. And all of us, my friend Leo D, if he's listening, it's not if, it's when. All of us, not if, but when. It's where we all belong. It's where we have to go. It's not if, but when we will be there. But in the earlier generations, the generation of Rav Nachman, Aliyah was filled with all kinds of dangers and threats and was for all intents and purposes, almost impossible. Rabbi Nachman himself tried to go, wanted to go, made an effort. But with the Ratzon, when a person wills something, we know the will alone can bring about and create a reality. Which is not a Maimar Chazal. You have to trace exactly where it comes from. It's what Herzl was paraphrasing himself. If you will, it is no dream. There is nothing that stands in the way of the Ratzon. The Hasidic Shesvarim say the word Ratzon is the same word as Ratz, to run. Why? Because when you will something, you get there even faster. You run towards that goal, towards that result. If you don't really want it, eh, you procrastinate, you're lazy, you stumble, you get there eventually. But Ratzon is Ratz. Your Ratzon, the stronger your will, the stronger your desire, the faster you run, the more you accomplish that goal. Why am I telling you all this? Why is Rabbi Nachman, Rabbi Nassim telling us all this? Because the Chaita Meraglim, what they didn't connect with about the land of Israel, what they didn't believe in was the power of Ratzon, the power of a will, the power of a dream, the power of a drive, the power of a desire. The obstacles, the obstacles, the impediments, that's the problem. You see, when they come back, this is so important to understanding our parsha. When the Meraglim come back and give their report, did they say anything inaccurate? No. Everything they say is true. Do they exaggerate? No. Everything they say is right on point. What did they do that was so wrong? And if you look, when Kalev responds, and Kalev grabs that mic and has his moment of truth, and he turns to the people, he doesn't respond to each of their points. He doesn't contradict it or respond to What does he say? Let's go. We got this. Let's take this. That's not much of an argument. You got a board meeting. Should we build the campus? Not. Is it a dream? What a reality? Can we make it happen? So one person says, you know, here's the problem. Here's the other problem. Here's the third problem. Here's the fourth problem. Here are all the reasons we can't do it. So... I think we should drop it. Someone grabs the mic and says, let's do it. Let's go. We got this. Put the shovel on the ground. Is that an argument? Is that a response? Is that persuasive? Is that compelling? What's going on over here? So Nachman says, you have to understand where the Meraglim went wrong is 
All they saw was what was right before their eyes. All they saw was what they could see, what was superficial, what was exterior, external. They didn't understand the power of a dream, the power of drive, the power of failure not being an option, the power of the person who sets their heart, their mind, puts their eyes on a goal and says, I'm not stopping till I get it. I will run over walls, around walls, under walls. I will run right through that wall because this is going to happen. I can refute your points point by point. But if you are already so close-minded that all you see are the reasons not to do something, then you'll never hear the refutation. So there's no point in going there. What you need to know is the power of Ratzon, that Ein Davara Omed Bifneha Ratzon, that Eretz Yisrael is a land of Ratzon, that if you dream it, if you will it, it is no dream. That if you will it, it is no dream. Ein Davara Omed Bifneha Ratzon. It's what the Miraglim were missing. It was the chait of the Miraglim. It's where we went wrong and it's haunted us through our history. We've only survived because we didn't listen to that message. Here we are because we didn't look at the reality. Tell a group of Jews who faced the Inquisition, the Crusades, a Holocaust, the odds of leaving Egypt. Tell Jews who faced those odds and those realities throughout our histories that if you dream it and if you will it, we will overcome. Tell the Chashmonaim who faced the story of Hanukkah. Tell Mordechai and Esther who faced the story of Purim. And if you listen to the voice of the Miraglim in our own heads, this point and that point and the other point and the odds and the data and the likelihood and the statistics and what the odds makers are saying, we wouldn't be here today. We would have given up long ago. But Mordechai and Esther didn't listen. And the Chashmonaim didn't care. And our ancestors who faced the Crusades, the Inquisition, the Holocaust, and those skeletons who survived in 1945, three years later, cobbled together old parts of cars to form Israel's first air force. If you haven't seen the film that was done by Steven Spielberg's sister on the first air force for the founding of the state of Israel, you can't watch the documentary and not think that the modern state is not a miracle. Skeletons who'd never flown planes, who just walked out of concentration camps, took spare parts of cars to make planes that wobbled through the air that became Israel's first air force. If someone would look at those parts and look at those people and say, what do you think? Should we take on seven surrounding Arab countries with their air force and their armies and their military? What do you think of those odds? If the Miraglam had a chance to grab a microphone and stand up, would we have a state of Israel today? It's because we silence the voice of those Miraglim in our ears and we see beyond the surface and we understand the power of Ratzon, of dreaming, of desire, of drive, of will, that Ein Davar Ratzon, that Eretz Yisrael is the Makam Ha'aras Ratzon in the world, the light, the energy, the power. So what was their answer? Efes Kiaz Ha'ama Yoshev Baaretz. No, they're too strong. Lo Nuchala Alos Ala'am Kichazakom Yimenu. They're too powerful. We can't go up. And what does Caliph say? I can refute your points point by point after. I'm happy to sit and go few. I'm happy to sit and go through and refute point by point later. But the first thing you need to know is nothing's going to stop us. If we dream it, if we have the drive, if we believe in it, if we will it, we'll make it a reality. Okay, now you want to know the strategy, how to respond and refute your points? No problem. Pour a drink, make a coffee, light a cigar. We can go through them one by one. But if you're not first with me, that alone, Allah, 
If you don't believe that we've got this, that our will is going to make us overcome it, then forget about it. It's never going to happen. And that's really the story of the Chaitamaraglam versus the voice of Caliph. Piazetzna has a beautiful piece. We studied this last year. Last year we saw four or five different opinions, or two years ago. We didn't have Shlach last year. Two years ago, Tavshin Peyal of 2021. You could find it online. We saw four different approaches to Alonala. But this is another, or this is a furthering their approach of Alonala. Anolala is Caliph saying, We got this. This is ours. We believe in this. This is going to happen. This is ours. This can happen. This can happen. This was their miscalculation. And this is why Kalev came up. He stopped in Chevron and he davened and he responded that we can, we can make it happen. We can make it happen. There's a beautiful Alexander Rebbe, the Yismach Yisrael, 1853 to 1910, the Alexander Rebbe. He says the Meraglim were concerned if we're worthy, it will be Tova Haaretz Ma'od. It'll be a land of Kedusha and Tahara. Ephes ki az ha'am, but there's also Tuma. Israel's a complicated place. You know, there are people who send their children for a gap year to Israel because they bank on Israel flipping their child out. Israel will set my child straight. Israel will be exactly what my kid needs to come back on the straight and narrow. And it's true. Eretz Israel is tovah ha'aretz ma'od. It's a beautiful land. The kotel, the yeshivas, the seminaries. Wow, it's amazing. But there's also Ephes ki az ha'am. But there's also the square at the end of Ben Yehuda. There's also the underground. There's also places of temptation and challenges. And there's places that kids can easily fall in, in Israel too. And that's what the Miraglim's fear was. What if we're unworthy? What if we come up short? What if we aren't up to the test? What if we don't have what it takes? Yeah, there's a lot of reward if you go to Israel and you get it right. But there's a big risk if you get it wrong can argue, I'm going to get in trouble for this. That's one of the calculations and issues when considering Aliyah. There's a lot who go and their children thrive and flourish and blossom. And there are many who go and children, depending on the stage of life, struggle because Ephes, Ki Azha'am, it's not also only easy. So there's enormous reward, but commensurate, there's also a lot of risk. And that's what the Miraglam got up and said. See the fruit, see the land. It's filled with possibility. It's pregnant with potential. There's incredible reward. But we've got to tell you, we were sent to investigate. We were asked to be honest. So we've got to give you a little honesty, reality check. It's also filled with risk. So one does the Alexander Israel. So where'd they go wrong? What's the matter with that report? Sounds pretty honest. Isn't it fair? What was wrong in their thinking? Moreover, he says, didn't Yaakov Avinu have the same thought process? On the one hand, Hashem promised Yaakov, I'm with you wherever you go. But Yaakov says, Maybe I'm unworthy. Maybe I'm not up to the challenge. Maybe I'm not worthy of Hashem's promise and protection. So why do we vilify the Miraglim, but we laud and praise Yaakov? When the people leave Egypt, did they not express concern and resistance and fear and doubt? as they get to the sea, the Egyptians in pursuit. And yet, we celebrate and laud all of them, and the Miraglim are vilified. So says the Alexander Rebbe, here's the fundamental difference. Yaakov was scared. He was nervous. He didn't let him hold it back. He plowed forward. He planned for his reunion. He marched on. 
He mentioned the concern he has. He was only honest and real, but he never hesitated. He didn't use it as a cop-out to hold back. Part of him said, I can't. But then he was determined. And the bigger and greater part of him said, I can. When we stood at Yamsov, we panicked. We considered turning around. We doubted if we ever should have been taken out. But then we pushed forward. Then we jumped in the water anyway. And the problem with the Miraglim was not that they had doubts. The problem with the Miraglim is not the reality check. The problem with the Miraglim is not the voice who says, are you building too much? Can you afford it? The interest rates, what are you taking on? Those voices are welcome. They're needed. They're necessary. The problem is when you let them hold you back, you have to persevere and overcome responsibly, strategically. But it's unforgivable. It's unforgivable to abort the mission and the plan because you indulge and you give in to those voices of self-sabotage and self-defeat. When you give up and you give in, instead of pushing forward and believing that you can. Kalev jumps in and that's when he blurts out, Alo Naleh, we got this. Who's in with me? Who's in with me? Who's coming? That's the answer, the ultimate answer that he's giving, one foot in front of the other. You gotta plow forward. We don't have a voice. The Maraglam said, Lo Nuchal. That was their mantra, Lo Nuchal. And what was Kalev's answer? Alo Naleh, why? If you had to just contrast the two voices, and I have to tell you, I find that people can be divided into one of those two camps. There are the lo nuchal people. Everything you raise, everything you suggest, every idea, every proposal, lo nuchal, won't work out, can't be done, we tried it, the other failed, lo nuchal, lo nuchal. And Khalif says, no, 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 that's not our people. We are the kiyachol nuchal. I gotta tell you, one of the reasons I have the best job in the world, I speak to colleagues and friends, rabbis in other communities, and they go to their board. First of all, they need approval before they can send out an email. But they go to their board, they have a big idea. They can afford it and pay for it. They have an idea, it's fiscally responsible. But no, that's not the way we do it here. This is why it'll never work out. Don't try it. This won't be against it. That won't be unhappy about it. So no, and they're stuck and stagnant. And I'm blessed to be the rabbi of the greatest shul on the planet, where there's a leadership who say, Rabbi, here your wings, go fly. As long as you're doing it financially responsibly, why not? Why can't we? Why can't we? We got this. And you have to ask yourself in your family, and whether it's about your own health, physical, spiritual, mental, whether it's about a project, you want to finish Shas, finish Tanakh, finish Mishnah, finish Mishnah Bura, whether it's about a dream that you have professionally, do you bring the attitude of lo nuchal, it's never gonna work out, it's never gonna happen, I'm not deserving, I can't pull it off, there's all the forces that are against me, my parents, my spouse, my children, my boss, my neighbor, lo nuchal, I can't. Or do you bring the mentality of yachol nuchal, are you the progeny of Kalev? Where does Kalev get his name? I happen to have a son-in-law named Kalev, I said this under his chuppah. Where does Kalev get his name? The Medrash says Kalev comes from Kalev is Kulo Lev. He's all heart. Kalev is kul, Kulo Lev, all heart. When you're all heart, when you have drive and desire and passion, I play tennis against my son-in-law Kalev. He gets to every ball. I hit a ball that should be a winner. Anyone else I would play, he's Kulo Lev. He gets to every ball. Yachol Nuchal. There's no such thing as a passing shot as a winner. Yachol Nuchal, I'm going to get to every ball and get it back. Yachol Nuchal, Kalev is Kulo Lev. So are we the children of Kalev, whether we're from his tribe or not? 
What's our spiritual legacy? Are we lo nuchal? Never gonna happen, can't pull it off, forget about it, abandon the dream. Or are we a people of ein davar ha'omed b'fnei ha'ratzon? There's nothing that stands in, in the face of us. I've said before, this is also, I think, the pshat connecting the maraglam, the beginning of the parsha, tzitzis at the end of the parsha. The maraglam are sent, lasuras ha'aretz, and tzitzis, it says, losasuru achare levavchem. It's no coincidence, the same language is used at the beginning of the parsha, the end of the parsha, the maraglam are sent to investigate the land, lasuras ha'aretz, uriisim osem, go see it, and tzitzis, losasuru achare levavchem, uriisim osem. Very same words, investigate and see, investigate and see. How does tzitzis work? Now we're skipping to the end of the parsha. How does tzitzis work? How does it work? Tcheles, contrast the turquoise and the white. Tcheles doma liyam, yam doma lerakiel, lerakima doma lekise akavod. When you see the turquoise, it reminds you of the sea. The sea reminds you of the heavens. Heavens reminds you of the heavenly throne. It reminds you of Hashem. So when you're tempted to do the wrong thing, but you look down at your tzitzis and see the contrast of those colors, what kicks in? What kicks in to save you from your own Yetzahara? The power of the imagination. If you look at your tzitzis, all you see are a bunch of threads, white and turquoise. But you're not just supposed to see what's right before you. What are you supposed to employ and engage? The power of the imagination. So you don't just see turquoise and white, you see, oh, that reminds me of the sea, that reminds me of the sky, that reminds me of the heavens, that reminds me of Hashem's throne. Oh yeah, I guess I shouldn't say this, do this, watch this, eat this, or go there. How does it work though? The mechanism is the power of the imagination. Uriisimoso. Jews have a third eye. We don't have two eyes. We don't just see what's right in front of us. You know, sukkahs, the four minim correspond with our four senses. So the, the lulav is the spine, and the esrog is the heart, and the aravos are the two lips, and the hadasim are the eyes. Problem is, how many hadasim are there? I know it's sivan, but you got this, guys. How many hadasim are there? If there are two aravos, one esrog, one lulav, how many hadasim? Three. How do they correspond with the eyes? How many eyes do you have? Two. So like it's close, close enough. It's cute. How does that work? One lulav, one spine. One esrog, one heart. Two aravos, two lips. Three hadasim, two eyes. The answer is we don't have two eyes. Jews have a third eye. And what's our third eye? Is the eye that doesn't see what's right in front of us. The eye that dreams. The eye that has ratzon. The eye that sees beyond the surface. The eye that sees possibility where others see what's impossible. And that's why when Moshe says, go la mosso, and they get it all wrong. They come back and report only what's on the surface. Here's the military stations. Here's how big they are. Here's the fruit. Here are the data. Here are the details. They only report as far as the eye can see. At the end of the parsha we learn when it comes to tzitzis that what does it mean, Urisimoso doesn't mean see what's in front of you. It means see beyond the surface. See with the third eye. See with the power of imagination. See a color that reminds you of the sea and the sky and the heavens and Hashem. See well beyond. That's why we're here. We're only here, the Jewish people, because we see beyond the surface. We see beyond the odds. We see beyond the possibility. We keep going further and further and further. They were Anshe Midos.
They are described as being Anshay Midos. Perakid Gimel, Pasuk Lamed Beis. Anyone have an extra hour? Perakid Gimel, Pasuk Lamed Beis. They spoke negatively about the land, and they describe Eretz Ochelos Yoshvah. This is a land that consumes its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are people of Midos. What does it mean to be people of Midos? People of? No, what does it mean? You could cheat. Look at the English. They were huge. They were enormous. They were people of great measure. No human growth hormone needed for these kids. They were fine. They were people of great measure. People of great measure. What is Anshe Midos? So the Das, the Canaan Balayatoso says, you know what Anshe Midos means? Listen to what it says. Listen to what he says. Sha'amra Maraglan Israel Shemash Eretz Kanani Eretz Ochelis Yoshvea, Ainzem Ne Rovachilas Mashtiyasam, Lokainu, Hare Anshe Midos Haim, Sha'ochlem Bemida Veshosim Bemida. He says, you know why we have no possibility of conquering this land? Because these aren't fat, overweight, unhealthy schlubs in there. They don't just fress to their heart's desire. They're on Midos. They're all on Weight Watchers. They're all eating exactly the measure they're supposed to eat. They're drinking the measure they're supposed to drink. So they're ripped. They're in incredible shape. They're star athletes. You can't contend with this army because they're on Midos. While we're busy eating pacha and what else? Give me some more over here. No, 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 no. What, what are the Jewish foods? We're eating kishka and chalant and kigel and pacha and shortbread. And we're eating all the things that clog your arteries. What kind of an army are you? That's what the Maraglim turn to Kalal Yisrael and they say, Hey, Chevra, I know we couldn't even have this meeting without offering refreshments. None of you would have showed up to hear our report. They wouldn't have had a, what do we always need to get? What do we have a meeting tonight now? What do you need to get? A uh, quorum. So the Maragrim come back and they say, we wouldn't have even had a quorum if we didn't put out a kiddush. That's Klai Yisrael. Klai Yisrael is you can't, you can't arrive at a quorum unless you put out a kiddush. So we're giving you our report while you're stuffing your face with shortbreads and pacha and kigel and chalant and kishka and charcuterie boards I got to tell you, you know why we're in trouble? Because in Canaan, they're Anshe Midos. You know what they're doing? They're eating the right measure, the right amount, exactly what they're supposed to eat. Where does he get this from? Das, the Canaan You know who else says this? Otoblos Torah quotes from the Rambam. The Rambam in Ilchos Deus says, Achil Oshri has to be Bemida, Rova Chalayim Abay Mala Adam, Enam Elab Neshu Ocha, Machalim Ram Neshu Mamali, Bitnova Ocha, Achil Gasa. The Rambam himself was a doctor writes, the reason people get sick and get ill is because they're eating either the wrong foods or even if they're eating the right foods, they're eating the wrong measure of it. Midos. We have to be Anshe Midos. Don't overeat. I'll tell you a little secret. It's not well known. You're allowed to stop eating when you're full. <laughs> Shh. You go to a restaurant and whatever they determined was the portion is what you feel. You have to finish your plate. Now I understand part of that's been ingrained in us through generations of being on the run and pogroms and holocaust and being starved to death that we've ingrained within our very DNA. You got to finish everything on the plate, but you don't have to finish everything on the plate. You're allowed to finish and stop eating when you're full. And the Ramam says, 
you'd be surprised to know this, that's actually a very healthy way to live. <laughs> Sometimes you don't even have to change your diet enormously, you just have to change, not the quality, but the quantity. And who would you be emulating? The, those who lived in the land, who were anshemidos, what made them superior, what made them people we were afraid we couldn't conquer, was they were anshemidos. They ate the right measure. And that's what the Rambam says. Rambam writes there in Hilchos Midos, Ani arevlo bali kol yamav. He says, I'll guarantee it. The Rambam says, I am the guarantor. Eat the right foods in the right measure. Join the ranks of the Anshe Midos. And I guarantee you will not suffer from cholesterol and blood pressure and sugars and the many issues that are plaguing the free world, the Western world today. The Rambam says, Ani arev, I will be your I will be your guarantor. The Sefer Shnei Luchos Abris has a different interpretation. Anshemidos. You know what he says? The Meraglim saw the children of the Yulidei Anak and he saw they were Anshemidos. They were really well behaved. And Moshe says, the spies rather turn and they say, our kids are little bullies. They're a little aggressive on the playground. They're not sharing, even though it's caring. Our children, they got a long way to go. And I found in Israel, the Meraglam say, they're Anshe Midos. They have good Midos. And we're going to have trouble conquering them when they're Bale Midos Tovos, when they have fine Midos. It's an Eretz Ochelz Yoshveha because the better Midos are going to persevere over the poorer Midos. So we need to improve our Midos if we're going to be able to go in and conquer. Fascinating new interpretations of what does it mean Anche Midos, he has many more. We got about a third of the way through what I wanted to share. So, depressing. Mekoshesh Eitzim, how tzitzis work. Why does it say Mo'od Mo'od? Could have just said the word Mo'od. Don't rebel against Hashem. Ay, all right, what can we do? Tomorrow morning, 10 minutes of meeting, we're heading towards concluding Mesil Susharam, living with Amuna. Tomorrow night we're going by in the Bima with Tzvi Glock, the founder and CEO of Amudim. Until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, and stay holy. Have a great day, everybody. Eat well.